in our field, people either love the ISCA and they're doing it all the time and they're spending tons of money to get training on it, or they think it's a terrible idea and don't understand why people are doing it. I think one of the main reasons that people should be cautious when using a synthesized contingency is because you don't actually know what pieces of that contingency are getting you the results you got. They know they can turn it on and they know they can turn it off, but they do not know why they turned it on or why they turned it off. The fact that you could also teach a new function is a secondary reason to be concerned. Welcome to the Practitioner Scientist Podcast. During this episode, our hosts interview special guest, Dr. Billy Retzloff, and discuss her 2020 publication from the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, entitled, A Translational Evaluation of Potential Iatrogenic Effects of Single and Combined Contingencies During Functional Analysis. I think that the main question was just, does this happen when you have synthesized contingency analyses? This seems like it might be a risk. Is that accurate? Dr. Retzloff began her graduate training in behavior analysis at UNC Wilmington. I got to start out in non-human animal labs working with Dr. Chris Hughes and Dr. Ray Pitts, who are both phenomenal behavior analysts, even though they're not clinicians. Dr. Retzloff went on to pursue her doctorate at the University of Nebraska while working within the Monroe-Meyer Institute at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. She served as associate director for the Severe Behavior Department, where she provided outpatient, intensive outpatient, and day treatment for severe problem behavior. I got the opportunity to work with a really great group of people, Wayne Fisher and Brian Greer. Dr. Retzloff currently works as a behavior analyst within an intermediate public school system. In her current role, she serves a caseload of 60 students in middle and high school who are receiving special education services. Here are the hosts of Practitioner Scientist Podcast, John Stobitz and Will Martin. John, why this article for the first season of the podcast? Given our focus on synthesized contingencies and assessment and treatment, I felt it could be a disservice for us to not speak to any of the critiques that have come up around this. And I was particularly interested in looking at this article because as we've talked with people, especially some of the practitioners from overseas, they've looked at this article and they have brought up, hey, is this a major concern? Is this something that I need to be prepared to speak to when colleagues of mine are concerned about this process? Will, what were you hoping to hear from Dr. Retzloff? I was really hoping to hear more about kind of the hypotheses around this paper, what she was hoping to accomplish by asking these questions, and really more about why a translational design. I think that's something that's different in this type of work that we're not really used to seeing as much. And for Dr. Retzloff to really give us, again, more of a, a background as to why this paper is important and why practitioners should consider it. I think it's one where we see the headline, we see the title of this article, and people have a strong reaction. But I don't hear folks talk more about the data, the methods, and kind of really the meat and potatoes of the article. So I wanted to give Dr. Retzloff a platform to talk about what really happened in this article and what conclusions are important to her. Hi, Dr. Retzloff. Thank you for joining us today as our special guest on the podcast. Do you see yourself as more of a practitioner, more of a scientist, or somewhere in between? I think that is such a challenging question. Um, so I guess I would say somewhere in between. You know, I never... Um, really thought of those things as distinct categories. Um, I was always kind of trained that to be a good clinician, you're a good researcher. And to be a good researcher, you have to be a good clinician because you have to be asking important questions. So I think for me, I kind of see it as one in the same. Um, but, you know, if you really want an answer, I guess I would say a little bit of both, kind of in the middle. 
What experiences in your career led you to your current emphasis on practical and efficient empirically supported intervention? So I think I had a really unique start in behavior analysis. Um, I I learned about the field kind of through happenstance and then ended up going to the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. And when I was there, I worked in um, non-human behavior labs. So those non-human animal labs, you know, you're really doing really good scientific research and you have so much control over things that we know in the real world we don't have control over. Um, and so I think that piece of me has always kind of stayed as I transitioned into the clinical world, which is really where I always wanted to be. Um, So I think I've had a really unique set of experiences because I kind of started from the most controlled environment you could be in and then have slowly went into um, less controlled environment, less, um, you know, emphasis on doing things exactly the way that you would want to do them and more emphasis on doing the things the way that they work and that other people can do them. It sounds like you've really had the opportunity to work with a number of excellent mentors throughout your career. Uh, Are there parts of your background that most influenced your work on this particular paper that we're going to discuss today? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of all did because the paper we're going to discuss today is really that... uh, to me, it's that beautiful middle ground of what behavior analysis can be, right? It's it's looking at a question that's so important in the applied world for everyday use, but it's taking a step back and doing it in a way that gives you control such that you can actually have more confidence in your data and what they mean and what they say. And I think that our field has such a um, potential for this beautiful relationship between experimental analyses and applied analyses and I really don't think I would be at the point where I was able to do that type of research if I hadn't had all of those different experiences. One of the key themes of the paper we're going to discuss today is the risk of a synthesized approach to contingencies. That's a concept that's been popularized by Dr. Hanley and some of the other guests we've had on this podcast. Are there aspects of a synthesized approach that you agree with? Yeah, I think there is so much about what Dr. Hanley and his colleagues are doing that you know, our field should be jumping at and paying attention to. The idea that we need to find practical and efficient ways to assess behavior and to get to intervention is so important. I think that throughout my career, I've kind of learned that there are two types of behavior analysts that I come across. There's a group of people who are so afraid to try anything that they haven't been trained to a T and they need all the details they need to have been you know, doing it under a mentor. And then there's the group of people who kind of read one article and jump on doing something. Um, And I think that what Dr. Hanley's group is doing is really trying to find like a nice middle ground there, right? Like we need to empower BCBAs to do assessment of problem behavior. It is scary if you haven't had, um, you know, a ton of training. And so they're focused on finding ways that we can efficiently train people to give them the skills that they need to do that is huge and it's so important. Um, So I definitely think those are all themes that I can jump on board with and be, you know, really supportive behind. One of the concepts that stood out to us within this paper is a focus on contingencies becoming functional reinforcers. And I just want to take a minute to make sure that Will and I and our listeners are understanding how that's defined. So when a stimulus such as escape from demands is determined to be a functional reinforcer for one particular behavioral topography, let's say uh, for elopement, for instance, but it has not yet been part of a reinforcement history for a new behavior, another behavior such as asking for a walk, 
then do we say that escape from demands is not yet a functional reinforcer for that novel behavior, asking for a walk? Would we say that escape at that point is really more of a preference? Yeah. So I think what you're asking about here and trying to clarify is we, when we talk about something being functionally related, we're talking about response classes, right? So being functionally related to a specific behavior is very different than just being a general preference overall. Um, the example I always give is that like, I love bourbon. Bourbon is a preference of mine, right? But there's really a small class of behaviors of mine that are related to accessing bourbon. And that's probably a good thing, right? We sh I shouldn't be doing things all day, every day just to get bourbon. And so I think that's really the difference is just because something is a preference, even if it's highly preferred, that doesn't always mean that it's functionally related to a specific behavior. So we really only use the term functional when we can show and we know that the reason a behavior occurred is because you know, accessing escape, accessing the tangible, whatever that is. Um, and so it's not to say, you know, if if I have a kid for whom I'm saying that their self-injury is not functionally related to accessing an iPad, that doesn't mean that I don't think the iPad isn't a highly preferred item. Um, and I still might be able to leverage something like an iPad in a treatment, right? Um, but what we know is that the way that that behavior has been shaped and developed and the way it's maintained in the environment right now isn't about the iPad. What is reinforcer induction and why is it an area of concern for behavior analysts? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So this really stems from that idea that you may teach a new function of a behavior, right? That you may initially be doing a behavior for one reason, um, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to contact other things. And then those behaviors may serve other, other purposes. So for example, you know, I have a daughter, she's two, and she learned to do this like pouty face. And she was doing it because every time she did it, I would go, don't smile, don't smile. And so it was serving for a Attention, right? So then she did the pouty face and my husband was like, are you sad? Do you want to watch a TV show? Well, now all of a sudden she'll do the pouty face to try to get to watch the TV show. So it's this idea that just because behavior is developed under one context or for one reason doesn't mean it's always going to stay that way. Um, and I think something to think about is that this is actually a good thing in a lot of ways. Um, so exa for example, you know, thinking about like manding and how you may mand in different situations in different ways, that's a good thing. Um, so it's sometimes really good and really important for an organism or a person to know how to kind of try different behaviors to see what they could work for. Um, but in the context of what we're going to talk about today, we're talking about how it can also be a negative thing. Iatrogenic is uh, another word that I think we can define for our listeners. It's not a word that's commonly uh, seen in behavior analytic research. In fact, I had to ask my girlfriend, Emily, who's a medical speech pathologist at a local hospital, kind of maybe how this word is used more broadly. And she had some really nice examples of if you're giving someone CPR, a broken rib may be a iatrogenic effect, or if someone's critically ill and you give them some medication to, to help them, delirium may be an atrogenic effect. Could you define the word iatrogenic uh, in kind of a behavior analytic context or how it, how it relates to this paper? Yeah, I do not think it is a very common term. I've never seen it in behavior analysis. Um, I always joke that Wayne Fisher 
found this word and used it because he wanted me to really struggle during my ABBA presentation when I presented this, uh, because it's kind of hard to say. So it's exactly what you're talking about, though, Will. It's just this idea that sometimes in medical settings, an assessment or an intervention, a strategy may actually have an unintended negative consequence. Um, and so really the only iatrogenic effect that I have found in the behavior analytic literature, and this doesn't mean there's not others out there, but the ones I've found are kind of what we're talking about today in terms of, you know, during the course of FA, seeing a new behavior function emerge. Um, so there's been some previous research on that. Rooker et al. has one, Jessel et al. Um, there's a, one from Shirley et al. in the 1990s. So there are a few examples in our behavior analytic research of how sometimes in the course of FA, you may have this potential issue come up where you're actually teaching a new function. Um, and so so that's really all that it means for us here. Like I said, I don't, you know, typically when I talk about this paper, I don't even use that word because it's not really that important that you understand that word as much as it is important that you understand that concept of what we're talking about, which is just sometimes what we do has unintended negative consequences and we need to think about those. Totally makes sense. And I'm glad I'm not the only one who struggles with the word iatrogenic because I practiced quite a bit before this this episode to make sure I wasn't butchering it too badly. Um, but it, it sounds like from the, the current literature that functional analyses may be where iatrogenic effects have been um, kind of observed in behavior analytic research. Is there a, a particular reason why synthesized contingencies were maybe hypothesized to be particularly at risk for iatrogenic effects? Yeah, so there were kind of two reasons that we um, had that thought or that hypothesis. So the first has to do with if you think about the antecedent conditions of a synthesized contingency, right? In a synthesized contingency, at least the published ones, it is relatively common, I would say almost all the time, that you see more than one EO put in place, right? So I'm not just taking away your iPad. I'm not just restricting attention. I'm not just presenting demands. I'm doing some combination of things. And so because you have multiple establishing operations, I should say that instead of just EOs, because you have multiple um, EOs in place, you are likely to evoke problem behavior if one of those is sufficient, right? You only need one of them to be strong enough to evoke the behavior and then you'll see it. And so in those cases, kind of how that then pairs with the second problem is then when the consequence happens, right? So you evoke the behavior and now we're going to deliver our consequence. That's how these analyses work. Well, my consequence is also usually multiple things. So now I'm going to give you escape, but I'm also going to give you access to your preferred, um, you know, activity. So that's one that you see a lot is it's kind of um, this going from like child directed play to adult directed play. Well, if you think about that, what happens during that consequence is not only am I taking away my demands to play like I said, but now I'm also probably adding in playing like you want. And so again, if even one of those consequences is preferred, not yet functionally related, but it's preferred, I'm going to get a whole bunch of pairings of my problem behavior with that preferred consequence. So those two things in combination, the fact that you a lot of times have multiple antecedents and multiple consequences it made us wonder, is this more likely to happen than in that more traditional FA format where you're really isolating what's going on? 
And, and you mentioned the Shirley Iwata and Kang article from 1999. If our listeners were, were looking for kind of other research or other literature documenting iatrogenic effects, would that paper kind of have a classic example of what that could look like in behavior analytic research and practice? I think that would be um, a great one to first look at. And I think the the kind of one caveat I would give of that is that most of those articles were not set up to test for iatrogenic effects. Um, and so, you know, you do not necessarily know, like, for certain that that was happening in the real world, right? Um, and that's true of our our paper as well. So I think that if I were really to want to like prove with certainty that this is an iatrogenic effect, I would want to then follow that individual and show, oh, look, and now at home, they're doing it to try in that Shirley article, it's to get a tangible. Um, so I think that, you know, there's kind of that next step that we haven't really shown. Um, and I think there's research that could be done there, but then there's also the question of, do we really want to continue to create more instances of problem behavior? Um, I would argue no. It sounds like there's certainly some ethical considerations there. In terms of the conceptualization of this paper, it sounds like, again, there's a couple themes, one being reinforcer induction, one being the danger of iatrogenic effects, and then synthesized contingencies. If you think back to when you all were conceptualizing this paper, were there certain themes that you were hoping to highlight more than others, or did you see them all as kind of equally important? You know, I think they were all equally important. Um, and another thing that we really wanted to highlight here was we there had been some research coming out of Dr. Fisher's lab at this point showing these potential false positives um, and other issues with synthesized contingency analyses. And one of the feedback that we kept getting was, but you never actually know the true function. Right. That's true. Mm. We you go to do an analysis and you don't know if your results are actually correct in the real world. Um, and so this study, another kind of theme or highlight that we wanted to do was to have a way to kind of step back and actually be able to say we do know what the function of this behavior is because we taught it. Through those last few responses, it's clear that you wanted to figure out if this was an effect. It also sounds like you said influenced by feedback for prior studies, you had to have a little more evidence for what the functional reinforcer was. Were those some of the things that factored into your decision to use a translational study to answer these questions? Yeah, 100%. That's exactly what it was. You know, um, I was kind of new to UNMC at that time, and we were sitting in a lab meeting talking about um, the study that was published, the original Fisher study, kind of looking at those potential false positives. And they kept saying how this was, they were trying to deal with this through the review process, right? Like, how do we deal with the fact that it's true? We don't know the function. And I just kind of asked, I said, you know, couldn't we create a study where we do know the function? I think there's other limitations when you use that translational approach, but this was one way to get at um, that question of, well, if you don't know the true function, how can you really talk about these things? For me, I'm not accustomed to reading much translational research. I'm kind of curious if you can speak to the role that translational work in general might play in informing applied practice. I will start by saying, just so people know, in case they're not familiar with the term, that in behavior analysis, we use the word translational research very differently than most medical fields do. Um, so in behavior analysis, we're talking about translational research, meaning it's going between that really controlled experimental analysis of behavior and the more applied realm. And so translational research can really fall on um, 
anywhere in that continuum, right? There's some translational research that is done with non-human animals, but the questions that they're asking have such importance to the applied world that it really is still considered translational. Um, and then there's studies like this where we're using, you know, participants who are somewhat similar to the individuals that um, would be getting these types of procedures in the applied world, but we're setting it up in a way that is a little bit more controlled or um, a little less realistic than what happens in real life. Um, and so for me, I think the role of this kind of translational study and behavior analysis is huge. Um, and I think sometimes it's underappreciated because the truth is there are a lot of questions that you cannot ask um, in an applied research kind of setting. So Will said, you know, sounds like there might be some ethical concerns with that. A hundred percent, you know, there are a lot of questions that are really important to our field, but we really have to think about how can we study that in a way that minimizes risk to everybody involved. I appreciate that you're having done this study. I'm, I'm so glad, too, for our listeners. You're breaking down how important this is, and I hope we'll all be a little more vigilant about looking out for those translational studies. Yeah, I think it's hard right now. Um, sometimes you got to go into JAB, you know, the Journal of Experimental Analysis of Behavior. Um, and so having our listeners know, you know, branch out a little bit. It's okay to kind of go beyond what you typically look at for literature, because I have been noticing a trend in the last couple of years that more and more um, translational studies that are really important to myself as a clinician are ending up in that other journal, um, which I will fully admit, I do not always gravitate towards. I usually read my job up first. Um, and so it's kind of been a wake up call to me too, to remember to, to check those things out. As we kind of dive into some of the methods uh, of this particular paper, could you talk through uh, the participant profile and maybe why this participant profile was selected for the study? So we recruited participants who were getting early intervention services in um, the Monroe Meyer Institute as well. And the reason that we recruited from that participant pool was we were looking for um, kids who were similar to the type of kid who tends to get um, severe behavior treatment and assessment, right? But we did not want to... Um, expose children who have histories of problem behavior to these type of procedures um, for our concern of strengthening problem behavior. And so we kind of thought, okay, this would be a nice middle ground where is it exactly the participant pool who gets assessment done for problem behavior? No, these are kids, we purposely selected kids who have low histories of problem behavior. Um, and I will say low histories because let's be real, Basically, every kid has some level of problem behavior in their history, right? Um, but they're not kids for whom they were being referred for treatment for that problem behavior. And so we felt like this pool kind of would closely match on in terms of, you know, different diagnoses that the individuals may have, um, different speech and language abilities, which tends to be an important factor. Um, and so it, it they were similar ages to the kids that we were typically treating in the severe behavior clinic. So it was kind of a um, good middle ground to us of a participant pool that was similar to the kids who may get these assessment procedures done, but was able to mitigate that potential issue of them having destructive behavior. It sounds like participants were selected in a really purposeful way for this study, which is always great to hear. To what extent were individualized demands, attention, or preferred items selected for these participants? 
Yep. So we tried um, as best we could to follow what our procedures would look like in the severe behavior clinic. Um, so what that means is that they were all completely individualized, right? Um, so we obviously were not able to ask, you know, what usually happens when the kid has this behavior because we were teaching the behavior, but we were able to do a preference assessment. Um, we did a paired choice assessment to be able to figure out a hierarchy of rankings. And then we interviewed um, the therapist who spent um, a good deal of time with each of these kids during their early intervention to talk about what types of demands were being presented during their early intervention work, um, what type of attention the kids preferred in those things. Um, and then I will say there was also a little bit of, because we did the preference assessment first, I got to know the kids a little bit. And so some of the attention became also, you know, how do they like to interact with me? Because I think anybody who works with kids knows that sometimes they love this one social game with one person, um, but then for somebody else, it's a completely different style of interaction. Um, so we definitely spent time before the study actually started getting to know them well and making sure that we were including demands that were appropriate for them, but also forms of attention and tangible items that were appropriate. The idea of teaching kind of a novel or neutral behavior to these participants to, to test your hypotheses is one that was kind of a newer idea for me. Could you talk through the rationale as to, to why you chose to approach your study that way? So kind of like I mentioned before, the biggest thing was we needed a behavior that didn't have a history so we could be more confident when we said this is the function of that behavior, right? So we picked a really weird behavior. I made these little cushions. I went into my craft closet and made little cushions <laughs> and we taught them to, to, to hit the pad, hit the cushion. Um, it's not something that they've ever seen before. And, you know, I say hit, really all they had to do was have their hand from like, you know, a few inches and come down on it. So they they didn't have to like punch it or smack it or anything like that. Um, but it was a really odd behavior that most kids don't do. There's not many games that you hit a random cushion in. You know, it's not really something that you would see in the real world. And that's what makes us so translational. But that's also was so important because I could be pretty confident that they were only doing it for the reason I taught them, that they didn't have some weird history where they were pressing cushions for other reasons um, that I didn't know about, which could then interfere with our results. So it really was important for the internal validity of this study that we could say with confidence, this is the function of that behavior. And again, I think it's a, a really unique approach to, to answering these questions. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about those teaching procedures that maybe you employed to teach this, this new behavior and, and how you measured mastery? What we did for this was actually similar to what we would typically do in our clinic for teaching a functional communication response. Um, so most of the time, and I'll say most of the time because there's always exceptions, but most of the time for um, socially maintained behaviors, we would teach a card exchange or a card touch, um, even for kids who have vocalizations. Um, and there's some research out there that kind of suggests why you should do that. But we just figured, hey, again, we're trying to keep this as close to the clinical world as we can. So let's use the same procedures. Um, so what we would do is we would introduce the EO. Um, so it would depend, you know, on what it was. But let's say, for example, we were going to teach escape. So I would present a demand. And then initially at a zero second prompt delay, we would physically guide them to do the behavior to touch that pad. And then as soon as it was hit, okay, you don't have to do that. And you'd provide that consequence. And then we just time delayed that um, 
to that physical guidance. So then, you know, two seconds, five seconds, and kind of increase that up until um, the kids were doing it independently. Um, and then we use the same mastery criteria we use for, again, teaching those functional communication responses, um, which is a couple sessions at 80% or about that they're doing it independently. What were the different functional analysis procedures that you used throughout the study? We use two different types of analyses in the study. We're going to use the term traditional functional analysis and synthesized contingency analysis because that's what we use in the paper and um, that was kind of what we landed on. So within the traditional functional analysis, what that looked like is really similar to kind of what was first described by Iwata et al., um, but included a tangible condition. So kind of, um, you know, the basic would be you have one establishing operation. So whether that be attention restriction, tangible restriction, or um, presentation of demands, and then contingent on the target behavior, you would provide a consequence that matched on. So providing access to attention, providing access to tangibles, or um, giving escape from the demand. And then we also had a control condition in there, which was kind of that more standard um, toy play, which is basically all EOs are gone. You know, we have an abolishing operation in place where we're not presenting demands, they have access to attention and they have access to tangibles. So that was what we called the traditional functional analyses. Um, and again, that was just based on how we typically would do FAs in our clinic. And then the second kind of analysis we did was a synthesized contingency analysis. And so for this, um, you know, if you read the paper, you'll see it's a little more complicated trying to decide what that should look like, because in literature, when people are doing synthesized contingency analyses, they're being really good behavior analysts and they're doing all the front end work before you do any analysis, right? So they're asking questions about like, when does this happen and what does it look like? Well, if I were to ask those questions of a caregiver, you know, when does your kid touch couch cushions, they'd probably be like, never. So we decided that we would just kind of create a standard synthesized contingency analysis, which included all of those common functions. Um, so in that one, what we did is we were kind of starting out with the child having access to a tangible item and my attention. And then when the session started, I would restrict that and start presenting demands contingent on that target response of hitting the pad, I would then take away the demands, give them back the tangible item, and also provide attention again. One of the things that you mentioned in the paper pretty clearly is that the synthesized contingency analysis is a little different from the interview-informed synthesized contingency analysis or ISCA described in the literature. Are there any key differences that you want listeners to understand about those two procedures? I think it's really important for people to understand that regardless of analysis type that you are doing, there should be a lot of really good front end work before you start running any type of analysis, right? Um, and I always tell people functional analysis is not a protocol. And if you or your clinic are running it as a protocol, you are doing it wrong. Because really all functional analyses, you should have really great descriptive and indirect um, measures that help inform what that looks like. And so it's honestly a true criticism of both our traditional FA and our SCA to say that that wasn't included. Um, and so, you know, I think we did our due diligence and you can read in the paper about, you know, the percentage of time that really in the literature 
um, the ISCA actually ends up including attention and tangible and escape is really high. Um, and there's also a really nice paper by Greer et al. in 2020, where they kind of looked at what does it look like if it's truly interview-informed versus more what I did, which is just the standard. Um, and I don't think that there are big differences. And so for now, I think it's not super important to our study how different they looked, but it is important for people to understand that they should never run any type of analysis the way we did in this study for true problem behavior. You should always have that front end work. Terrific. I think that's helpful for everybody to, to understand you're not endorsing <laughs> this, nor saying this is the best practice. This is, it almost sounds to me in some ways like the synthesized contingency analysis was necessary for this translational approach because the interview protocol wouldn't have really made sense, as you said. Yep. for this novel behavior. Um, it seemed to me that it was kind of important the way in which you sequenced the different analysis types in order to answer your question. Can you describe for listeners how you sequenced those and how that helped you answer your question? That was really important. Um, so after all the training phase happened, the first thing that each participant experienced was the traditional FA. And the reason for that was we wanted to um, see and make sure that the behavior was really only occurring in the context in which it was trained, right? Um, so like I mentioned earlier, there are examples where traditional FA has resulted in either false positives or creations of new functions of behavior. And so this was kind of a test to see, is that happening for any of these participants? Um, so we did the traditional FA first for every participant. We did randomize um, how long that traditional FA would initially be for the participants. Um, and so that was just to add another kind of element of control to see, you know, is it really just because you're doing it short or would that continue to look the same if you run that out a little bit longer? And then the next phase for all of our participants was the SCA. Um, so that synthesized contingency analysis. And then every participant experienced one more round of the traditional functional analyses after that synthesized contingency analysis. And the reason for doing that was that gave us the opportunity to see if any new functions would pop up after they had experienced that SCA. Um, so we really had to do it in that order. You know, it wasn't an option to say, oh, we're going to move order around for different participants because you couldn't answer the question unless you followed that sequence exactly. Well, I'm curious, as you prepare listeners to listen to chapters three and four, what are they going to hear from Dr. Retzloff? I think they're really going to hear her evidence and the results from her paper and kind of her argument for why this should inform practice and, and really how it's informed her practice as a school-based clinician right now. So really, again, diving in deep with some of the evidence there that was produced from this paper and her argument and giving her space to say, this is why this is important and why it should inform practice. John, as we planned for this episode, we wanted to be really thoughtful about how we interview someone who disagrees with the viewpoints of some of our previous guests and whose opinion might be different from ours. Could you talk to the listeners about our approach for this episode? Sure, Will. I agree that while there's a lot of commonality in terms of our priorities and our belief in behavior analysis and, and some of our interests, there, there were some disagreements we had with Dr. Retzloff, and it was really important to us as the hosts to ensure that she had a chance to tell her story. She's the one who did the research. She's the one who has the message here, and that we don't interfere with our biases and the listener's experience of taking what they want to from that. How did the study go? Could you summarize the results for the listeners? The best way to probably do this is to kind of break it down to phases. So in that first um, kind of training phase, 
all of our kids learn the response. Um, it That's not very surprising, right? All of these things, attention, tangible, and escaping demands are generally preferred for a lot of people. Um, so the fact that we were able to teach this response relatively quickly for all the kids um, was not a super surprising finding, but it's important to know that they did all um, kind of acquire that response relatively quickly. When we moved into the traditional FA, what we saw for all six participants was we really only got responding during the trained um, the trained context. So we used the Sani et al. criteria, which is based on the Roan et al. criteria, just to have some sort of like structured criteria. To be honest, I don't think that really matters. I think you can look at the graphs and see responding was happening in one condition for all the participants and not happening in the other conditions. Um, and, you know, something important for listeners to remember is that in FA, we always only compare tests to control. We're never going to compare test to other test conditions. So when we look at this, we really saw initially everybody was doing it in the context they were taught to and nobody was doing it in other contexts. When we move into the SCA, we saw something very similar, which was all of our participants really readily engaged in the response in the synthesized contingency analysis um, during that test phase, and none of them did it during the control phase. So again, you know, if, if that was kind of the only thing you would have run, you would have been confident, yep, we got it, we have a function here. And then when we moved into the um, final phase of the traditional of a the, the second time they experience that, that's where the data get a little more complicated to talk about because we see a couple different patterns. So for three of our participants, what we saw is um, really the response didn't change compared to the first traditional FA. They still responded in the context which they were taught to respond and they didn't respond in any extra conditions. So for those individuals, you know, we can kind of say, okay, we didn't really have a negative impact of experiencing the SCA. Then we have um, two participants, their names are Tyler and Adam in the study, and they show a very similar pattern of responding also. They were both um, taught to engage in the response to access attention. And when we went back to the traditional FA after seeing the SCA, they both also engaged in the response to access tangible items. Um, so it seemed for both of them, we had this effect of having taught a new function in the form of tangible um, for the target behavior. And then we have Bobby, because there's always one. If you don't know that by now, <laughs> you haven't read a lot of literature. There's always a Bobby. <laughs> yes, there's always a Bobby. So Bobby was taught to engage in the response um, to access tangible items. And in his second traditional FA, we saw that he did again, um, engage in the target response to access tangible items, but he also engaged in the response to access escape. Now, this is those times where we talk about, you know, you don't you don't compare um, tests to other tests, right? That's not how FAs work. So there is a function of escape for Bobby, even though escape happens at a much lower rate compared to tangible. But if you compare it just to the control, you do see separation between those two. Um, he engaged in the response every time during the escape condition, and he never did it during the control. Um, so his data are a little different because it seems like that um, response during escape was not as strong um, as it was for the other participants, but it was it was there. 
Were there any surprises or particularly surprising outcomes that came up during the study? You know, to be honest, I don't think there was anything too surprising. I mean, I was straightforward with you guys at the beginning of this. The question was, is this going to happen? And I don't think you really ask the question, is this going to happen when you think it's not going to happen, right? Um, So we were asking the questions because we, we suspected that this was likely to happen. Um, I was not surprised to see that tangible was the most commonly taught function that actually is um, really in line with other literature that shows, um, you know, tangible, um, teaching a tangible function during an FA may be the most likely to occur. I think that that makes sense because when you deliver a tangible item, it's such a salient event, you know, like I don't have something in my hands and now all of a sudden I do is really obvious versus something like attention, you know, that may not be quite as um, salient to a participant. So I don't really think there was anything super surprising about these primary findings. As you just mentioned, tangible popped as one of the functions that were induced within the study, as did escape at a little bit of a different kind of data pattern there, but still was shown to have been induced using your methods. Do you see that specific function is important when it comes to reinforcer induction? And you mentioned some other studies that maybe showed that for tangible. Could you talk a little bit more about that? And I think it's very important because I think, like I said, it's such a salient experience to be given a tangible item. Um, and so there have been some other people, you know, even in Hanley's review FA review where they talk about practitioners should be really careful about including tangible items in FA. You know, we really should only be doing that if our indirect and descriptive um, measures suggest it's a functional um, relation. It's not one of those that you should just just throw in there to be (laughs) safe or to check it out. Like we really do as clinicians need to understand that um, tangible items are likely to do this. I think that also happens a lot when people get really protocol-y with their FA. Um, So the Shirley paper, I think, kind of hits on this. So what happened in that Shirley paper is they were able to show that behavior was maintained by automatic reinforcement, but then it was also maintained by access to tangibles. And they were using just a high preference item from a preference assessment, right? But when they went into the individual's real world, they never saw the behavior happen and that item be delivered. The only thing they ever saw delivered was a towel because the behavior in question was hand-mouthing. So the individual in the real environment would hand-mouth and people would give her a towel to, you know, clean up. And so then when they went back and they did the tangible condition with that towel, they didn't see behavior maintained. And I think this can happen a lot if your kind of protocol for FA is to do a preference assessment and use the highest item in your tangible session. Because you're using a super preferred item, the likelihood that the kid learns, hey, all I have to do is hit you and I get that item or hit myself and I get that item is probably a lot higher than if it's not the highest preferred item. Um, So I really encourage people to think about not only using a preference assessment, but again, making sure they have that good descriptive or indirect uh, measures too that suggest, yep, that item really does coexist with problem behavior. One of my favorite soapboxes in behavior analysis is not being too driven by protocols and using our clinical judgment to make real in-the-moment decisions. And it sounds like that's something that that you're really passionate as well, which I can definitely appreciate. Um, Yes, I will hop on your soapbox with you anytime. (laughs) 
That's always great to hear. There's always room for everybody on 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 those soapboxes for sure. As we kind of look at the data a, a little more closely, I noticed that Tyler and Adam both had similar variability in their data during the training session that's displayed in figure one of, of this paper. Um, and that was a little bit different from the other participants in the study. Do you think there's significance there? If I'm being honest, I don't. I think the variability exists because the other participants it was acquisition was lightning fast, right? Um, we all know, having done this work for a while, that acquisition is not always lightning fast. Um, and so I think the fact that, you know, you see a little bit of variability doesn't really suggest that um, there's like a huge difference between those. The other thing to remember is that those were such few sessions, there were so few trials in those sessions that you really see it has to pop down to 80%, but that just means they missed it one time. Um, so it's not like they, you know, were not responding at all or something like that. One of the other kind of patterns I noticed in the data were that the three participants who we noted uh, iatrogenic effects for also engaged in disruptive behavior. Uh, and the ones without iatrogenic effects did not were not noted to engage in disruptive behavior in the study. What does that mean or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So actual disruptive behavior was um, quite the source of debate through the review process for this. Um, so what you see in this final article is that we describe it in words, but there is not a graphical depiction of um, actual problem behavior. And that was the kind of middle ground that was come to because it's really hard to know what was going on with actual problem behavior. And so I think that there was one school of thought, which was, we don't really understand what was happening here. The three kiddos who did have some disruptive behavior, their patterns were all a little bit different and um, kind of personally having been there and been the one running the sessions, I would I, my hypothesis of what was going on would be a little bit different for all of them. So Adam, for example, he was in a really novel room that he never had gone in before. And it had this like crazy echo and he would just kick the wall and it would echo and echo and echo. <laughs> and so for him, I think his destructive behavior probably meant nothing in regards to the study and just meant it's really cool to be in an echoey room. <laughs> um, Bobby was the one who had the most destructive behavior. He, however, also started having some issues during his EI programming in a totally different context um, than what we were doing in the study. Um, and so as it mentions in this paper, we actually, when we terminated the study, we initiated some assessment and treatment of his problem behavior. We didn't have to move him over to severe behavior or anything like that. It was something that, you know, our team could support the early intervention team and, and get things in place relatively quickly. So it wasn't anything like Mondo big, um, but he's kind of a weird one where I don't know what was going on. It could have been an impact of the study. It could have been something totally different. And then Tyler is probably the only one that I would say with relative um, confidence, it may have been about the study because his problem behavior was, it was just this like pushing of demand materials. Again, um, from somebody coming from severe behavior, I'd say it was low level problem behavior. 
Um, but it always happened when we removed all of the materials of the um, tangible. So it kind of would happen when their signal was clear that this is not only escape condition, but this is escape to nothing condition, right? Those items aren't even in your site anymore. So they're definitely not getting delivered. So I think it's a great question, but the honest answer is we have no idea what was going on with problem behavior, which is why it kind of becomes a little a little note in there that it occurred, but not a lot of discussion. Since you all screened for that on the front end, were you surprised to see some disruptive behavior pop up for some of your participants? I found it surprising that y'all were able to identify folks in an EIBI classroom who maybe didn't have a history of problem behavior. So I didn't find it particularly surprising that under these conditions, we saw some disruptive behavior, but would love to get your thoughts on that. I also didn't find it shocking. Like I said, it was all pretty low level you know, type of behavior, like I said, kicking wall, pushing around demand materials. Um, our sessions were relatively short, but we did not include any intervention. So like if the kid typically was working on a token economy during their EIBI settings, that wasn't in place here. And so, you know, these were kiddos who didn't have big histories of problem behavior, but that doesn't mean that, you know, support for appropriate behavior isn't really important for them. So I didn't find it too shocking. And because none of them really did um, things that were dangerous or alarming, I felt okay about it. But it was really interesting that it was the three kids who we also saw this induction for. And I wish I could give a more confident, like, why did that happen answer, but I just can't. For Adam and Tyler, during the second FA, we saw similarly high levels of pillow touching during the trained detention conditions and the untrained tangible conditions. And then additionally, both of them engaged in disruptive behavior during the escape conditions. Could that be interpreted as a, an apparent sensitivity to all the establishing operations during the second functional analysis? And what's your interpretation of that? I think you could actually say the same for Bobby too, right? He had that escape, but it was such a low level. Like I always questioned, was it, you know, you were used to the escape too tangible and like we really had taught you an actual synthesized condition and that was what was going on there. So I think you could definitely say there was probably a sensitivity to all of these. And again, I don't think that's super shocking because they're all really good things. There's not many people out there who don't like tangible attention and escape from demands. You know, those are all... Um, things that have really good value to them. And, you know, something that one person asked me one time is, isn't that weird though, because all these were kids with autism. And so why was attention valuable to them? And I think something that's important for people to remember is it's not that attention can't be valuable to a kid with autism. It just may be that, you know, their version of interaction looks different than what our version does. And so I think at this point in my career, I had gotten pretty good at figuring out for you as a human being, what kind of attention do you like? And I'm willing to do that. If it's silly and, you know, kind of feels weird, I don't really have a lot of um, hesitancy to jump in and just do it that way. So I wasn't surprised that, you know, it seemed like a lot of the participants were sensitive to all of these stimuli changes. We just talked through some of the implications of the study and the data you generated. Based on those implications and the data, what should scientists be doing? I think the biggest thing is that scientists should really be thinking about and considering different options out there. 
So personally, in my clinical work, um, I do not use a synthesized contingency analysis. And the reason for that is that one, you know, like the studies show there may be risk, but my other question is always, what benefit do I get from it? Um, and so I think that really we need to step back as scientists and always consider when I'm going to pick my analysis procedure, what is the cost of that? You know, it costs time. It costs resources. Um, is there a cost of a potential risk involved, whether that be risk to, you know, I think um, Dr. Jessel talked about some of these of, you know, like, how does it look and feel to the parent or other people involved? Um and so we have to really consider all of those things. And then the side part of that is what's the benefit? What do I learn from this assessment that helps me help this individual and their family or other stakeholders more? Um, and so I think that that's really, you know, this study is just a really small nugget and a really big picture of that um, kind of weighing of risk versus benefits. And is your message the same for practitioners or do you have different advice? I think, again, if you're a practitioner, you are a scientist. So I have the same advice for everybody. You know, as a practitioner, that's um, one of the things that does worry me a little bit about the synthesized contingency analyses becoming so popular is I almost feel like they give practitioners this, this false sense of, oh, I've done an analysis. We've been seeing research for years and years that pops out that, you know, FA is not done in clinical practice to the level that it really should be. And that there are lots of people who would benefit from having FA procedures done that aren't accessing them. And so as I've kind of talked to people in our field about this, it's almost like the SCA gives this sense of, oh, I did an analysis, I checked that box. Um, and my question always is, you know, did checking that box get you the information you needed? Um, because if it did, okay, great. But for me personally, in my work, I just don't get the information I need from checking the box with an SCA. And so I think it's really important just to, you know, not do something because the optics of it look good, but to really consider what information I get. So something that I think surprised a lot of my colleagues um, in my new position, I work now in a public school, was when I came in, you know, I do champion using FA. Um, and I tend to lean towards a trial-based FA because it tends to be really efficient, but you also get to use those isolated contingencies. But I really challenge them to think about which cases are the cases that we're going to do this with. Because if our indirect and descriptive measures and we are good and we put healthy contingencies in and we see behavior change, great, let's not do it. We don't have the resources to do an FA with every single kid in our school. And so I think that that's a really important conversation to pe for people to have is let's not just do it because optics say we should do it, but do it because it gets us the info we need. School-based consultation is something that John and I are both pretty passionate about. And I think, you know, when we go into schools, it's often working with BCBAs that have large caseloads and few resources. So this idea of really triaging what you're doing, where you're allocating your resources, I think um, it's, a, it's really kind of a practical recommendation that often maybe is missed in some more university laboratories is how do we actually get the resources and allocate them 
effectively when we're dealing with school populations or, or other situations where resources are really limited. Yeah, that's definitely the situation that, you know, I have walked into. I think this past year I had about 60 kids on my caseload. And so I'm not going to do 60 FAs. You know, that would be like so amazing if I could. But kind of the approach that um, we are starting to champion and I think is a really good one to take is you do your, you know, what schools typically call an FBA process, which is indirect and descriptive measures. And you put healthy contingencies in place. And for kids for whom those healthy contingencies haven't been enough, they get triggered into this trial-based FA kind of protocol. Um, and then the other kids that we immediately put over into looking at doing some type of FA with are kids who we are flagging automatic reinforcement. Um, and the reason for that is that, especially in a school setting, but I think in any real world setting, you can never be confident that something is automatically maintained just by watching it because it never happens in real life that nobody does anything. Like people always <laughs> respond to problem behavior in real life. And so to be able to be like, oh yeah, that's definitely automatically maintained. Like you just literally cannot be confident in that. So that's kind of the approach that we've been taking is, you know, anybody who were worried about automatic reinforcement, get them into some type of analysis procedure. Um, and then also anybody for whom healthy contingencies just aren't serving us um, or or potentially really severe behavior that like we have to stop this. You know, we don't have time to test out healthy contingencies. We really have to stop this now. Speaking of automatic reinforcement, uh, one of the recommendations uh, in your paper was that an iatrogenic effect could be avoided by screening for an automatic function and then completing a single contingency FA. Could you tell us a little bit more about this approach and its practical implications? Dr. Hanley and his crew are phenomenal physicians and clinicians and I 100% believe they are not putting kids through ISCAs who have automatically, you know, who they have indication that they are probably automatically maintained. Um, I don't think that is being talked about very often in these studies. And so I think it's an important point to bring forward of if you have an individual who engages in automatically maintained problem behavior, like, of course, they're going to do it during your test condition, right? Um, and so that could be then one of those situations where you're a lot more likely to kind of add new functions because, again, they're going to do the behavior. And if they do the behavior, it's going to contact these really preferred um, situations. That's true of regular FA or traditional FA as well. So I really recommend people always screen for automatically maintained problem behavior. And what I actually do in my clinical practice is if I screen for um, automatic behavior and it pops up as a yes, we stop analysis and treat that first. And then after we have a treatment for that automatically maintained behavior, if we have to go back to FA, we do. Um, and the reason for that is it's really hard to get clear FA results when you have a kid engaging in automatically maintained behavior because they're just doing the behavior so much. Um, so for me, that's kind of the, the sequence I take is I actually screen for it, treat it, and then go back to FA with treatment in place for um, that automatically maintained behavior if needed. I recently watched Dr. Greg Hanley's current virtual workshop. It's on practical functional assessment and skill-based treatment. And in it, he explicitly talks about iatrogenic effects, and he voices skepticism that conditioning of reinforcers could happen in as little as 15 to 20 minutes. As you review your data from this study and 
other published data out there. Do you see that a little differently from him? You know, I do. I have so much respect for Dr. Hanley and all of the things he is doing, like I said, to disseminate. But I would say that our data disagree with that because our participants, they only experienced three five-minute SCA sessions, right? So they only had 15 minutes, and yet we still saw this happen for a chunk of them. Um, so I I do think that, you know, his point is well taken in the fact that we have all spent a lot of time trying to condition something for a kid and it doesn't work. Um, and it takes multiple, multiple weeks and, you know, reiterations of our procedures and things like that. And so I, I understand that it's not going to happen for everybody, but I think, you know, data are suggesting that it will likely happen for a subset of individuals. Would you say that behavior coming under the control of additional reinforcers, does that tend to help more, hinder more in terms of treatment, or does it just depend on the child and the situation? I think it's mostly a hindrance. I do not have research to back up why I feel that way. And so I think these are all really great studies that people could do. Um, but why I feel like it's a hindrance is so much of my career has been spent trying to get other people to do behavior analytic intervention, right? So when I was at the university um, in the severe behavior clinic, one of my biggest roles was our outpatient clinic, which was our follow-up clinic. So kids who had gone through really intensive um, services and then working with the caregivers after that. And I also did our really um, important school consultation program, you know, like you guys mentioned, and now I work in schools. And that is so much just me trying to get other people to do what they need to do. It's really important in that situation that I have the easiest treatment possible that works, right? It has to work. So that's like step one is it has to be an actual effective treatment. But after that, it has to be as easy as humanly possible. And so, you know, examples that I've given before are like, if say we have a false, um, a false positive for escape, and we also have a true attention function. So now I'm trying to help a caregiver or a teacher learn how do you continue to deliver demands because I think escape is important. So you have to keep delivering your demands while balancing that you don't give them too much attention for it, right? So you have to give your demands in a super neutral voice. You have to say no more words than necessary and all of these pieces to it. That's very different than if I had known the reality, which is just a true attention function where I can just say, don't respond. No matter what, sing a song in your head, tell yourself a story, make your shopping list, do anything else that you can possibly think of besides responding to this kid right now. And so I think that that becomes why it's so important. Um, you know, I could see a world in which more complicated treatments have bigger issues with like treatment integrity and those kind of things, but those studies haven't been done. Um, so if anybody listening is looking for like a really great master's thesis, I think that's, that's the road to take, right? Is what is the impact of having unnecessary treatment components? The other piece that is for me important is when treatment doesn't work. Um, because I think we all know that, you know, you can design what has been shown to work in the literature and for this one kid, you know, your Bobby or whoever it is, it's not working. 
And when you have a whole bunch of functions that you're including, now I don't know why it's not working, right? Do I have the wrong tangible item? Am I delivering the wrong type of attention? Like, I don't know. Versus if I can be really confident that this is the one functional reinforcer, it's a little bit easier to start tweaking and trying other options because I'm more confident what road I'm supposed to go down. So I think this does tend to be a hindrance over um, a benefit for sure. I appreciate it. I feel like what you're framing here is your, your clinical judgment and, and your professional experience. And I like that you're kind of issuing as a challenge. Hey, folks, let's look at this. Maybe maybe, maybe this is important enough of a question that further investigation should really happen. Yeah. I mean, I think if you talk to most clinicians, they would agree with that, you know, that it is hard to teach a caregiver to balance things or... Um, you know, I've seen situations where treatment works really good when the BCBA or RBT is the one implementing it, and we're struggling to get the parent or the teacher to do it. And when I watch and pay attention to what's going on, you realize, oh my gosh, this clinician is in the moment deciding what EO is in place, what function is most important, right? They're doing all these things in real time because they have training and expertise that lets them do that. Well, not all of our teachers and parents and stakeholders have that training. And so they are much more likely just to, you know, kind of stick to the protocol. Um, and that that issue, I think, is just such a hard one to capture sometimes in research. But I do think a lot of people experience it and feel it in their clinical practice. It feels to me like a little bit of what you're saying is that if someone is working as a behavior analyst and they're being effective, that they need to be aware of maybe the additive or subtractive effects of the different functional pieces. So if someone's choosing to synthesize contingencies, if that's effective or not, <laughs> that understanding why it's effective or not sounds to me like that's maybe one of your values that you're that you're wanting people to understand. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think one of the biggest pieces, so I remember like early on when we were talking about this research, I had I went to Dr. Fisher and I had said, you know, Wayne, can't we just do a, like a treatment validation, right? So the problem is that we're, you know, the traditional FA is saying the function is escape only. And the um, synthesized FA is saying that it's escape to tangible items. So why don't we just do an escape only treatment and an escape to tangible treatment and show if there's a difference? And he was like, that's so dumb. Like, you know, he didn't say it that way, but that's oh basically gosh. what he said, because <laughs> it is, we have so much literature that shows that you can treat like um, problem behavior maintained by escape with positive reinforcement, right? I do it all the time. I never get to use escape extinction in a school. Never, ever, ever. There is no way that a school is going to like physically guide a kid just because they're being non-compliant. That is not happening. And so this idea that like, you know, a treatment validation would would serve that purpose, it's not really there because we know there's always this crazy interplay of positive and negative reinforcement. Um, I mean, there's been people out there who question, is there actually a difference between positive and negative reinforcement? And so I think these intricacies are just important for people to think about. And, you know, it's not to say that just because escape is the only function, you're not going to include elements of tangible reinforcement or attention reinforcement. But the key is what is really driving this bus 
is the function. Um, and the other stuff is kind of your extra that you're really trying to leverage to help you get a better effect. For readers to accept that reinforced reduction has occurred, we really have to be convinced that those items that were only preferred prior to the SCA, that like after that, they became functional reinforcers. And so if Tyler's EIBI therapist had happened to use his most preferred item, for instance, the iPad as a reinforcer during several prior therapy sessions, does that at all affect the probability that reinforcer induction is going to occur within uh, a synthesized contingency analysis as it did in this experiment? So I think there's kind of two parts to that question, right? So the first is like this idea that you have to accept that these items were only preferred. And my thing to you would be, well, how could they have been anything else? It was a made up behavior, right? Um, and so I think again, that was kind of the purpose of doing this weird translational version was to be able to be more confident in that. Because if we were doing this with kids with real problem behavior who are really coming in for assessment, that would be such an important question. Like it could very well be that we had just, you know, misunderstood what the true function was. And then for your question about, you know, like using those reinforcers ahead of time. Um, so I will say that a lot of the preferred items we use were things that I had bought. And so they, they weren't available to the kids at other times, um, which I think is important to know because, you know, we understand how abolishing and establishing operations work. And so, yes, if they had had a lot of exposure um, to those items, they may not be as potent of, um, you know, preferred or reinforcing items. I will say, I don't think that's true of the iPad um, because the iPad is such a weird reinforcer that you can access so many different things on. Like kids just don't satiate on that the same way that they satiate on something else. Um, so I think that for our study, it was pretty safe to assume that things happening outside the study weren't really impacting um, that responding. So has there been a response to this paper from scientists or reviewers that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I kind of mentioned earlier, this this paper did have a really intense review process, I feel like. Um, I'm really grateful for Dr. Linda LeBlanc. Um, she was our AE for this and then actually also served as the editor-in-chief just because it was a weird, um, it was like as she was kind of taking over the reins. And I think she really helped us um, shape this to to be such a good um, example of, you know, providing strong conclusions and, and talking about the data without shying away from what those data really were, but also about being tentative when you need to be tentative and, you know, not overstepping your data. And so I think that this is a really good example of how um, the Java review process can be a really great thing. Um, it did get really mixed reviews. Um, it got reviewed by some people who, I am guessing are very um, inclined to use synthesized analyses in their practice. And then it got reviewed by some people who I think had similar concerns to us. And so it was relatively clear from the reviews what camp people were in. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of been almost an unfortunate response to this paper is that it kind of seems like it's perpetuating this idea that there are these two camps in behavior analysis and that you are either, you know, all for the ISCA and think it's a great positive thing to be doing, or you're very against it. Um, and I hope that, you know, throughout this conversation, people have heard and realized that there really is, I think, a middle ground there where there's a lot of really great things that are being championed by the people who 
um, kind of created and are disseminating these procedures. Um, but also that, you know, myself, someone who doesn't use them and who has some concerns, um, it's not that I'm just like anti everything that comes out of it, right? Like there is a middle ground there. And I think as a field, it would probably be helpful if we acknowledge that a little bit more. Reminds me of some of the the comments that Murray Sidman made before my time as a behavior analyst about us becoming too dogmatic and too kind of segregated into groups and not being able to work together. And it seems like one of your messages is really that we need to, again, use clinical judgment and evaluate what the best pathway forward is for kind of every case in, in each situation. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, like I said, I'm I'm really honest about personally, I have yet to find the time that the the synthesized analysis is the way for me to go. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not there because I will say, you know, we have another um, paper that is in the review process for Java right now, where we're looking at the prevalence of different functions um, in kind of a really large sample at the university clinic. And there was at least one example where there was a true synthesized function, right? There was an individual for whom in if you looked at, you know, isolated contingencies, you did not see the behavior and you only saw it when you combined them. And so I think that that's really important is, you know, a lot of these studies are done with smaller sample sizes. And so it may be if the prevalence of that is relatively low, the studies aren't capturing them, but it doesn't mean those individuals don't exist. And if an individual's problem behavior is truly maintained by this interactive type of contingency, and you don't know that, you are going to be horrible at treating it. Like you are going to get that so wrong. Um, so I think it's really important as a field that we kind of be open to, to the multiple perspectives and to understanding the science behind our behavior. And like you said, Will, not the protocol, but the science and let that science drive how do you arrange contingencies to test the hypotheses that you have. Well, I'll definitely be looking out for that paper because it sounds like there's some interesting data there that's going to be pretty informative. So great to get a preview of that. Dr. Retzloff, you mentioned that you're no longer in kind of an academic setting. You're working in school context. Kind of what's next for you in your current practice? I'm really excited to be in a school context. Um, it was a career move I'd been looking forward to for a long time. Um, I always tell people schools are where it's at because you get the kids lots of hours a week without having to fight insurance for them. Um, you know, that's always kind of a battle with severe behavior treatment is this, you know, you have to show some progress. So insurance will keep funding you. But if you show too much progress, they're going to pull on you. Um, and I think that the reality is, is we need to develop treatments in the setting that they're going to be used. Um, and so it's really, it's been a big challenge for me switching because there's a lot of things that you lose. I don't have as many padded rooms and one-way mirrors as I did before, but I'm really excited to continue um, in the school context. I think I landed at a great um, district where people are really willing and open to um, talking about new ways of doing things. And so that's kind of the big push for, you know, the next few years of my career is to really get some of these things that we've been talking about today as common practice within our school. So, you know, when we have kids who we're not being successful with, we should be doing some type of analysis um, and not not letting the fact that an education FA is not a standard practice 
um, hinder us from kind of voicing and championing what is best practice. So I'm excited to keep doing that. And um, I'm hopeful that we will also be able to, you know, continue to share those data through publications and things like that to show, you know, this this stuff does work in real world settings. And is it messier? Yes. <laughs> is it always done how I would want it to be done? Uh, no. But, um, you know, we, we can make a really big difference as a field. And I think part of that is being open to how do we do it efficiently and how do we do it in a way that other people can kind of understand and get behind. Dr. Retzloff, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's been a, really a, an informative conversation, and I'm so glad to have your voice as part of this first season of the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. This was awesome. I'm really hoping ABA conferences are in person next year so we can keep getting out of our echo chambers a little bit and starting to share this information over a drink and really start to have some of those informal conversations that really, I think, thrive in conference settings. I'll be looking forward to that. Thanks, guys. This episode of the Practitioner Scientist Podcast is brought to you by the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center's Treatment and Research Institute for Autism Spectrum Disorders. Triad would like to thank Dr. Billy Retzloff for her participation in this third episode of the podcast. Access to the article discussed in this episode, as well as contact information for Dr. Retzloff and her hosts can be found in the show notes. The thoughts, views, and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the individual hosts and guests and do not represent the thoughts, views, or opinions of Triad, the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center, or Vanderbilt University Medical Center. This episode was written and produced by John Stobitz and Will Martin. Dave Coleman edited and mixed the episode at Howard's Apartment Studio. All music for this episode was written and performed by John Stobitz, Corey Nichols, Nick Milliner, and Dave Coleman, and was produced, engineered, and recorded by Dave Coleman at Howard's Apartment Studio. Special thanks to Dr. Kayla Randall for making this episode possible.